Yeah, I'll give it to my wife. She'll take it. It's amazing. You see, oh, I think it's still on. She'll switch it off. It's amazing. Danielle, my wife does that to me too. She tells me how long I can talk for and how much I can say. And before this, this message is over, she will have told me already some things as well, which I invite because I love her and she's my best friend and she can tell me lots of cool stuff. One last announcement next week, Sunday. Uh, and wait, sorry, before I go on, please be praying for Danielle and Braden. It's not an easy place to be preaching to young people who are caught up in the world. And so please put them on your prayer list. Be praying for them all the time. Uh, we are going to get uh, and continue to give you updates as to how they're doing. And we'll share more information as we get it from them. Amen. Uh, last announcement. Next week, Sunday, we have Steve and Terry Barr with us from NCMI. And they are going to be coming for our ordination Sunday. So this is a big day in the life of the church. We are adding to our eldership team. We'll be ordaining Ryan and Shannon Stratum onto our team. This is a great time, friends, to be here, to support them, to lay hands on them, to pray for them. Believe me, this is a monumental task that they're taking on. And it's going to require us as a church coming alongside them and supporting them. So if you do... Uh, want to be here, not do you want to be here, I know you want to be here, but please be here so we can pray for them and love them and set them into place. It's also a great thing to witness, to see how the NCMI team, the apostolic team releases elders into our local church because uh, we invite them in to do that. It's a beautiful moment to see them fulfill what God had put on their hearts many years ago when they left South Africa to come here. So I'm excited. I also want to encourage you, if you have words for them, if you have something on your heart to share with them, to encourage them about going into the season, please write them down and bring them with you next week. We want to put them together and either we'll give them to them or you can give it to them directly. But those words become really important in the journey that they're going to walk in keeping them going. Amen? Amen. Cool. Okay, so now I can start my clock. You see, I wouldn't have done any of that. Tim would have done all of that, but now I'm here. Hi, my name is Marco. It's good to be with you this morning. So we're back in our church series. We're back in our church series this morning, and we're going to be bringing this series to its close. Today is the final installment of the church series. I want to spend a few minutes just reminding us uh, of all the things that we've been through over the last 12 weeks about what a Christ-centered church looks like. So up there on the screen, we've got that diagram, that wheel. You can call it fruit. You can call it DNA. You call it, can call it characteristics or aspects of a healthy Christ-centered local church. Remember, these are not things that we can pick and choose. We don't get to decide which one we want and which one we want to take away. These are all elements that need to be at least evident in the life of the church. Some of us may be good at some of them. Others will be worse at. So let's talk about these things real quick. The first thing about a Christ-centered church is it has to be centered around... Good job, guys. Okay, that means that the church's responsibility when we gather on a Sunday morning, when we gather in our homes, when we gather in our small groups, wherever we are, and however we gather, we gather to celebrate and to worship a person whose name is Jesus Christ. We're not there to worship a gift, a celebrity, somebody that's great at doing what they do. We are here to worship Jesus. Everything we do flows from Him, and everything we do will flow towards Him. That's the purpose of a church. Hallelujah. We also know that a Christ-centered church understands that there is a difference between the church and the kingdom. The church is in the kingdom, but the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom is under the sovereign rule of the king. Jesus is on the throne, and we come under his lordship. The kingdom is the collective of all the saints across the world serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And wherever we go, we take the kingdom of God that's inside of us, and we bring it to the world. In fact, wherever we go, the domain of darkness is pushed further and further away. That's why it's important to be sent, to go and to do the things that God's called us to do. We know that a Christ-centered church is spirit and word-empowered. And so not only do we believe in the 
timeless and foundational and, 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 and unchangeable truth of God's Word that is 100% relevant today as it was the day it was written. But what we also trust is that the Holy Spirit will empower what we do. We can't do this through intellect or logic. We need the Spirit's empowering force in our lives to change the world, even if it means that on a Sunday morning things may go a little bit different to what we had planned. We will allow for that because God is God, not us, and we want Him to move. Hallelujah. Acts 1 verse 8, for you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What we also know is a Christ-centered church is a church that understands that priests aren't special people that wear special clothes. Peter tells us that priests are actually all of us. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for his possession. Why? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called out of darkness, us out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Every single person in the church as a believer is a priest. We're priests here in the local church, and guess what? We're priests out there in the world. Whatever you do, whether you're at home, driving your kids to school, teaching, whether you're serving as an executive on a team, whether you're just sitting at home playing Xbox, you are a priest in that moment. So when you're talking to your friends, I'm talking to the kids back there, Tell them about Jesus. Hallelujah. Nobody's excited today. We also know that our Christ-centered church knows that in order for us to become more like Jesus, we have to devote ourselves to the things that are important. The early church devoted themselves to spiritual practice. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the Word of God, to fellowship, community, getting together, building relationally with each other. They committed themselves to the breaking of bread, which we're going to do today, remembering what Jesus did for them on the cross. And they committed themselves to prayer. What we also know is that they were a highly generous church. Everybody had everybody in their houses all the time. They gave to the needs of the church as the church needed to grow in advance. And so those are the things that we devote ourselves to. And when we do that, we grow closer to Jesus and we grow closer to each other. A Christ-centered church is also intentional about discipleship. You see, what that means is that discipleship is not an event. It's not something we invite people to to a discipleship seminar so we can disciple you for the weekend. Discipleship is something we do every moment of every day as we build relationally with one another. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you are not accountable to somebody in the life of this local church, get somebody to be accountable. Find someone you can trust, build a relationship with them, and, re- and discipleship works both ways. If somebody is discipling you, you need to be discipling someone behind you. That's what a discipleship community truly looks like. And yes, while we may teach on discipleship, the function of discipleship happens as we live our lives. We should be doing it all the time. And what we also know is that a Christ-centered church, and this is going to dovetail into what I'm going to say this morning, is a church that understands that it exists not just for its own benefit, but that there is a mission. There is a world. We have this apostolic calling, which means to be sent, to go, to find the people in this world that God's sending us to. For some of us, that might be another country. For some, it might be another university. For others, it might be another neighborhood. And for others, it might be your workplace. It doesn't matter where it is, but we are apostolic in our going, and we want to bless the world with what God's blessed us with. And that, ultimately, friends, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to this morning. We're going to end this series by looking at the final element of what it means to be a healthy Christ-centered church. And that's this. A Christ-centered church understands that it exists to reproduce. So let's bow our heads. I want to pray for us real quick. Lord, perhaps today more than ever, I'm very much aware that without your anointing, I'm unable to teach your truths. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me and that you would use your power to take these words and turn them into revelation knowledge, not just information, 
but revelation. Lord, I pray that this would captivate all of our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would fall heavily in this place, not for my glory, but for your glory, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would leave this church this morning, this building, Lord, in a way, Lord Jesus, that we, were, that we are very different to how we began our, our mornings. I pray, Lord, that you'd fill us afresh. This morning, we prayed about the virgins, Lord Jesus, and the 10 virgins, those who had oil and those who didn't. I pray you'd give us oil this morning, and not just oil that is enough to see us through, but oil that we can point to other people's lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. We've read this passage a few times in the series, but it says this, and God blessed them. Before that, it says, and God created them, male and female. He created them in his image and in his likeness. And God said to them, be fruitful. Another word for the word fruitful is reproduce. That's where we get our word produce from, because it's fruit. That was clever. And multiply. So be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This concept of reproducing, this concept of multiplication has been something that has been on the heart of God from the very beginning. It's not a new concept. It's not something that we've developed as a modern day church because we have nothing better to do with our time than to get you to go do things for God. God's heart has always been take what is in Eden and turn the world into the kingdom of God. Adam and Eve failed. We know that. The rest of the other people failed. But ultimately we end up at the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't fail. He goes to his grave, comes up, resurrected, pours out his spirit. It's in us now. And that mandate moves to us. The words reproduce and multiply. I want to talk about them real quickly. The word reproduce means to make a carbon copy of something. Like a photocopy. You take something, you put it in the photocopy machine, the kids don't even know what a photocopy machine is. You put it in there, you slam that thing down and you zap the button and it spits out an image that is exactly the same as the original image. Maybe the only thing that's different is the paper. Sometimes you can do this with a painting. You can look at a painting and redraw it. Don't do that illegally. That's not good for you. But you can create a copy of a painting, right? It looks exactly like the original, but it's not the original. But it has everything that the original has. And so that's what reproduction means, is to take something and make something exactly like it. Again, multiplication is taking that reproduced item, that thing that is a facsimile, and multiplying it over and over and over and over again. I'm saying this to you this morning, not because I want to teach you an English lesson, but I'm saying this to you because I'm going to use these two words interchangeably today. I'm going to use multiplication and reproduction. Sometimes I'm going to use them both in the same sentence. I don't want you to think they mean two different things. In the context of today, we're talking about one thing, and that's building the kingdom of God. But what's important about these words, these concepts, these ideas, is what do they mean for us? What do they mean for me as an individual? What do they mean for you as an individual? And what do they mean for us as a church? You see, often when we talk about multiplication, we think of it in the context of planting more churches, sending more people, doing more things. But I want to I say this to you, that before multiplication can happen at the church level, it's got to happen in our own personal lives. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And now, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, multiplication has something to do with sanctification. You should be different today than the day you were when you were saved. And if you're not different, maybe you just got saved, that's okay. But if you were saved a long time ago, but you still have the same bad old habits and you haven't changed anything in your life and you don't even feel convicted about it, there's a problem. I want to talk to you after church. We can do it privately. 
But fundamentally, friends, our end result, where we end up with, as we are closer to Jesus, should look very different to the way we started. It's called moving towards Christ. We are becoming more Christ-like. Is Christ multiplying in our lives? Are His attributes multiplying in me? Are they producing something in me? Is there a fruit in me that is going to last for eternity? Or am I not bearing fruit? And if you aren't, I don't want to condemn you. I want to say, get on your knees and say, Lord, fill me again. Help me understand that you want to multiply yourself in me. Multiplication also affects those that are closest to us, right? It should, at least. It should affect our family. It should affect our friends. It should impact the way they look at us and see us and experience us. You should be very different to them than the day you were when you first saved. Perhaps some of them might even come to faith without you bashing them over the head with a Bible, but just by living your life with them, showing them how much hope you have in this King who died for you and joy that is you know, inexplainable because the world's falling apart, but you can say, I can trust because Jesus is on the throne. And so multiplication, this process of reproducing starts in our hearts and then, yes, it moves into the church. But I want to say this to you, that how we multiply, how we reproduce in the context of church is critical. And I say that because I think we can reproduce or multiply in a way that I don't believe brings any honor or any glory to God. What do I mean by that? Honestly speaking, we can multiply in a very self-serving way. It happens when we become the, the kind of church that's more interested in itself than it is its king. It happens when we're more interested in building a brand and an empire than we are in building the kingdom of God. It happens when we misunderstand what reproducing is and we think that growth is reproduction. You see, when growth is the objective, then what we will do will always be to seek more growth. We'll build bigger programs, better programs, more attractional programs. We'll want to invite more people in. Our messages will become diluted because guess what? I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't preach an easy message here. And it shows, right? We can grow very, very quickly if I just told you what you want to hear. When growth is the objective, we start to want to create hype around everything we do. We start to want to elevate people to godlike status and put them on platforms and pedestals and say, look how amazing these people are. When they preach, we all listen and they change our lives. Now, I have nothing wrong with that if it's done under the anointing of God, but when we create and we build these platforms around people, gifts, talents, and personalities who ultimately cannot bear the burden of that weight themselves, we're setting ourselves up and the church for failure. You see, when we think that growth is the objective, we will always want to become what culture says is a successful church, and that's the mega church. Now, I do want to be clear in what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there is anything wrong with having a big church. In fact, the word mega means powerful. I was listening to something that Gary Wilkerson said this week, and he reminded me of that fact, that the word mega is not a bad word. It means powerful. There's nothing wrong with having a powerful church. There's nothing wrong with having a powerful ministry. There's nothing wrong with having a powerful anointing. There is nothing wrong with having great programs. There's nothing wrong with growth in numbers. Those are all good things, but what does matter is the heart behind what we do. If we're growing for our own sake, if we're growing for our own empire, if we're growing for our own kingdom, we are in trouble, friends. We're not building for eternity, we're building for now. If we build for our king, if we build for Jesus, if we're building it for his advancement, then we're in a good place. And then we can grow as big and as wide as God wants us to. I don't have a small church theology, friends. I have a God-sized church theology. Lord, give me the church that I'm able to carry with you as the head of the church. You see, when we build the kingdom way, 
it means that we understand that in order for us to reproduce, we need to replicate and not just grow. And so instead of building towards ourselves and building our empires and building our ivory towers, what we do is we start to build away from ourselves and we start to build the kingdom of God. We become the kind of church that develops leaders, that raises people up, and that releases people so that one day, it doesn't matter who's leading the church, the church will continue because guess what? Jesus is the one who's in charge, not an individual and not a personality. It's the kind of building that produces something. Ed Stetzer describes it like this. He says, just as the true fruit of an apple tree is not an apple, but another tree, so the true fruit of a leader is not a follower, but a new leader. If we're all honest, the Western church has become really good at creating followers. You know why? Because followers submit and they listen. They do what they're told. Leaders think for themselves. They start to experience God for themselves. And just on this note, and it's not in my notes. In fact, I took it out of my notes, but I'm going to say it. We've got to move away from a culture of volunteerism. Volunteerism is that time where we say, okay, listen, the church needs somebody to do something and so I'm going to put my hand up and tick that box off and say, I did my thing for God and I can go back to my life and feel better about myself. That's religion, friends. Be careful of it. We need to move away from volunteerism to what we call leadership development. Do you know that every time we volunteer, every time we serve in the local church, we are developing our leadership potential. Why? Because we're following the example of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 20. What does he say? I did not come to this world to be served, but to... And so every time we serve, every time we put up our hands and say, I'm getting behind this thing, we're developing ourselves as leaders. And then what, guess what happens? We start to disciple people around us. When we're on teams, doing things in the church, it shouldn't be a job that we do because we've got nothing better to do with our time. It's because we're there to be developed into and we're there to develop other people as we point them to Jesus. And this is not a big cry to say, please volunteer for stuff. Don't do it if you don't want to do it. Please don't. But what I am saying is it's an opportunity for us to create more leaders. The true fruit of a small tree is not a new Christian, small group, is not a new Christian, but another small group. And the true fruit of a church is not a new group, but a new church. Whenever this principle is understood and applied, the results are dramatic. And what's clear is when we follow the kingdom way, the kingdom model and the kingdom heart, then what will always happen is multiplication is the result. When we follow God's ways, we will always multiply. Now, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that it doesn't come at a cost. Jesus said this in John 12, verse 24. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There is a dying to self when it comes to multiplication. It means that we actually have to take our own lives and say, Lord, Lord, I'm giving it all to you. And if it means I have to do things that I never thought I could do, was going to do or capable of doing, I'm happy to say, Lord, under your guidance, I'll do it. It also means that we take the things that are holding us back and we lay them down. Jesus was speaking about ultimately what he would do. He would go to the cross. He would be buried in a tomb. He would die the death that we should have died. And then what happened? He was raised from the dead. How many believers do we have in the church today? Millions upon millions upon millions. Why? Because one seed fell to the ground and died. When we are baptized, in the water. We do exactly what Jesus did. We say we are dying to self. How many people in this room have been baptized? Okay, so you know what we did in that moment, and I'm speaking to myself here, is we said, Lord, we are identifying with you in death. We are going into the water and we're going to kill our old man and we're going to come out and we're going to be these new creations. We are going to be reborn. But then you know what we do? We leave the church and we go back to our life. I do it all the time. 
Multiplication means we live in the new man. We've laid down our lives. We put that stuff aside. And we say, Lord, use me however you want to use me. There will be a relational cost in multiplication. When this church multiplies, whether it's a campus or a church plant, you will lose friends. Maybe not forever, but they'll go to another country, another place, another city, and you won't have the relationship you had with them. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared to let those people go? There will be a financial cost to this church when we release people. Why? Because those people will go to another church. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let them be a blessing there. But there will be a cost in supporting other churches too. There are costs attached to multiplication. It doesn't mean that we don't do it because we don't like it, friends. We count the cost. We say, Lord, if this is your will, if you've told us to do this, then you will provide. You will make a way. There will be a gifting cost. Some days we we might have to lose the very best that we have. We might have to send the Charlies of this world for good. The best. Hallelujah, I'm not joking. Don't laugh. But here's the deal. It doesn't matter who it is, whether it's me, Charlie, Mark, one of you guys, JR, whoever it is, the person that you think, wow, these people are so good at what they do and they are good and they're amazing, but we might be asked by the Lord to send them. Are we willing to let them go? Or we, do we want to say, no, man, if we do that, we're not going to grow. We can't have it both ways. And so considering there's a cost, I want to change tack a little bit. I want to just make us think about a few things. We know how to reproduce now. We know what it looks like. We understand when we should multiply and why we should multiply and the cost that comes attached to it. But now more than ever, we need to understand the why behind what we do. Why? Do we need to multiply in the first place? Yes, God commanded us in Genesis. And yes, we know that God commanded us as his followers to honor his great commandment and his great commission, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself in the great commission, Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And know this, I'll be with you till the end of the days. I think you're also teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Obedience. Yes, we want to honor those things and we want to do those things. And you know what happens? Something interesting happens when we do honor the great commandment and we love God and we love people. We want to do the great commission because if you love people, you want to go and tell them about Jesus, right? But something else happens is we start to become like the early church. When Jesus said to the early church, go, what did they do? They went. When Jesus said, go and make witnesses or be my witnesses, what did they do? They went and they witnessed. And then he said, make disciples. What did they do? They made disciples. What happened after they went? They made disciples and they were his witnesses. They started to plant churches. They did what Jesus commanded to do. And if we do those things, we'll do exactly the same thing. That's the model. That's how it works. And you think, well, that's great, Mark. It sounds awesome. Hallelujah. We see it in Scripture. But you know what? I just don't get it. I want to be vulnerable with you. For many years of my Christian life, I never got this. I didn't understand it. People would tell me all the time, oh, you've got to go. You've got to go save the lost. You've got to go preach the gospel. It's in the Bible. And I'd say, yes, it is in the Bible. I see it. But God's clearly talking about somebody else, not me. You know, I just thought there's somebody more qualified than me. There's somebody better positioned than me. And maybe I'm not planting a church. Maybe I'm going to support someone. But whatever it was, I was like, Lord, surely you can do what you need to do in me right here where I am. How many of you have thought that? Nobody. Everyone hears them. Everyone hears them. I mean, you guys are all going. So next week, we'll have no one left because you will have gone. <laughs> Probably. I struggled with this thing. I struggled to understand why it was important as a believer. And so I'm saying to you this morning that if you struggle with it, and if this thing is still weird to you, and you're thinking, man, why is this church so much about going and sending and building and planting and creating more disciples? Why can't we just focus on here and now? We don't even have everything fixed here. Now you want to go fix something else out there. 
I want to tell you the only way that your heart will change is through revelation. In my case, it happened in 2013, February. I remember the day, the hour, and the moment. I was walking across the Arabian Desert, and God met me literally in the wilderness. And he changed my heart. He started to show me things that I never knew I could see. I wish I could take my heart out of my chest and give it to you and say, here it is, go and figure it out. I can't do that. But what I can do is tell you this, God changed me. He gave me a heart for people that I never even knew I had. He gave me a heart for his word that I never knew I had. He gave me a heart for the lost that I never knew I had. He gave me eyes to see the world the way he sees it, like the prodigal son's father, a father waiting for the prodigals in this world to return, not out of religious superiority, not out of antagonism or look at these stupid people, what they do all the time. No, man, my heart is broken for people out there that need to hear the gospel. And so in the remaining time I've got, and I've used a lot of it, I want to give us three quick points as to why multiplication is fundamental. If you're struggling to understand this multiplication concept and reproducing concept, I want you to understand that it is fundamental. It is the only thing that will break down labels and division in this world. It is also not only fundamental, it is essential, friends. Because you know what multiplication does? It builds for the next generation. And then lastly, I want to show you why it is actually the only option we have. And so first point, multiplication is fundamental because only the kingdom of God can bring some level of peace and security and unity to this divided world. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we live in a world full of labels, right? People love to identify as whatever they want to identify as now from animals to cats, dogs, fridges, whatever. I I mean, you can do whatever you want these days. But beyond that, there's other labels, right? We love to call ourselves Republicans or we call ourselves Democrats, or we call ourselves conservatives, or we call ourselves liberals, or we call ourselves Texans or Californians, or we call ourselves church people, we call ourselves those that are, you know, Pentecostal, we call ourselves Baptist, we call ourselves this, we've created labels within the context of church itself. We call ourselves spiritual, not spiritual, Christ follower, not Christ follower. Some people don't want to, you know, be known as a particular thing, they want to be all things to all people, but these labels, friends, what they've done is they've divided the world and they've divided the church. And we've let it happen, just by the way. The church has allowed it to happen within the context of the church. And so I want to tell you a story. I'm not going to get to the scripture this morning, but the scripture's there. You can go read it, Acts chapter 11. Let me give you the back story here. There is a Jerusalem church that is exploding. Literally thousands and thousands of people are being added to the church. The first mega church, actually. Unfortunately, they were starting to get a little bit comfortable. Then what happens? Stephen gets martyred. He dies for his faith. And so what happens? All the believers start to get scattered across the entire world. Why? Because they are escaping persecution. Most of them left, these new Jewish converts, and they preached the gospel, this message of Christ to only Jewish people. But some of them actually went to the Greek people in a city called Antioch and started to tell them about Jesus. These Greek people received the gospel, the Hellenists, and they received it with great power. And it says many people were added to the church that day. Word gets out, goes back to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem church, and they say, listen, James, you know, Jesus' brother, you know what's going on? There's this big revival that's happening in a city called Antioch. James does something interesting. He sends Barnabas. Barnabas, by the way, means son of encouragement. He sends his best. He could have found some rabble rouser from the church and said, why don't you go and help this church in Antioch? They're Greek people after all. We don't really care. 
No, he sends Barnabas, A, the most generous person in the church. He sold everything that he had and gave it to the church. And then he sends the most encouraging person in the church to another church. I mean, this is what the kingdom of God should be like, but we don't do that. We want to hold on to people. Anyway, Barnabas goes, sees what's happening, sees the spirits moving, sees people are getting saved. More people are being added to the number. He gets excited. He's like, wow, this is amazing. You know what Barnabas does? He said, that's it. Because this church is in revival, I'm now the Pope of the church. I'm going to build it around me. Because there's God here. No, he goes and finds Saul, who is now Paul. Barnabas could have said, this is my thing. Look at me. I'm the hero of the day. I'm changing the entire city. They didn't even know Jesus. No, he goes and finds somebody else. He says, come and help me do what God wants to do in the city. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, what has this got to do with breaking down walls of division? What has this got to do with unity? Well, let me tell you, at the end of verse 25, it says this, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Do you know what that word Christian means? It means little Christ. What a horrendous word. Can you imagine that you would be called the little Christ because you behave like Jesus? What an honor. You know, Christians today don't even call themselves Christians anymore because they're like, well, everybody's a Christian these days. Man, I love that word Christian. I want to be a little Christ. I want to look like my king. We need to redeem that label, friends. If there's one label we need, it's that label. It's Christians. Why does it matter? Antioch was a divided city. The city was built with walls, literal walls, physical walls that separated cultures. Jews went here, Arabs went here, people from North Africa went there, Gentiles went in another place entirely, the Greeks stayed here, the Romans stayed there. Nobody ever spoke to each other until it was to trade. And then all of a sudden, the reproducing gospel arrives in that city, the Holy Spirit comes, people start getting added to their number, and no longer do they call themselves Greeks or Romans or North Africans or Jews or Gentiles. They say, I'm a Christian, and that's my identity. And what happens? They start to climb the walls. They start to break down the walls. And the people, the rulers of the city are like, what is going on? All these people are together all the time, praying and singing and having a good time. I'm excited because here's the deal, right? We are so passionate about programs and we're passionate about causes, but we're not passionate about Jesus. We think the world's gonna be fixed at the next election. It's not gonna be fixed, I'm telling you right now, because as long as the man is in charge, you're in trouble. We think that the next political party will be better. It might be, but they're not gonna fix the world. The world will still be divided. You wanna unite this world? You wanna bring people together? Even those that are so lost right now, you don't do it through your own strength. You do it through the kingdom of God. Jesus is the only answer we have for a lost and dying world. And it's our responsibility, friends, to bring it in. That's why you need to multiply. Because as the kingdom goes, unity comes in. Division gets sent out. Multiplication. I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm going to start speaking in tongues now. Multiplication is essential because it builds into the next generation. I'm not going to read the scripture either. Again, go and look it up. Hezekiah. It's in uh, 2 Kings chapter 20. One of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Let me paint the picture for you. Hezekiah was actually a good king. He came from a bad bunch of people. They did stupid things in Israel. In fact, in Judah. One of the worst kings ever, actually. They're before him, not Hezekiah. He's a good king. The nation of Assyria is consolidating its position in the Middle East. It wants to take Palestine, Syria. I mean, yeah, Syria, well, that's where it came from. Samaria, it wants to, it's, it's already whipped Jerusalem. I mean, uh, Israel. And now it wants to take Jerusalem. And so Isaiah, the prophet, goes to Hezekiah and says, listen, but there's these people coming. They're bad people, okay? They're coming, there's thousands and thousands of them. But I have a word from the Lord for you. He says, stop going back to Egypt to get your help. Because what Hezekiah was doing was running to Egypt saying, can you give me horses and chariots and armies to fight these people? I want to tell you, the church needs to stop going back to the world for help. 
We need to go back to our king. We need to get on our knees and say, Lord, help us, please. Don't go back to the world. Go to our king. Hezekiah listens. He says, okay, great, we're going to do this thing. I'm going to trust that God will protect us, and God does. The angel of the Lord goes into the Syrian camp, kills thousands upon thousands of them. I believe the angel of the Lord was none other than Jesus Christ, the armed warrior with swords that are flaming. He whips them. So Hezekiah is saved, right? Jerusalem is saved. Yay! So what does Hezekiah do? He does what every king before him has ever done. He starts to get rich on his own success. He starts to get drunk, sorry, on his own success. And he decides, well, you know what? Since God protected me then, I'm going to invite the Babylonians to come and see me now. So he escaped the Assyrians, now invites the Babylonians into his house. Isaiah says this to him. He says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Because Hezekiah has shown them everything. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that is which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons. Listen to this. Some of your own sons. Look at your kids and imagine that somebody came to you and said, your kid, this, this kid that you fathered is going to be taken into captivity. Will come, the sons that come from you, whom your father shall be taken away and shall be eunuchs, not just prisoners, eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. I'm not even going to get into what that is. Now you might think, well, this sucks. This is a terrible story. Why are you telling us this? You know, ultimately what did end up happening is Babylon came. We know what happens. They take Judah into captivity. They destroy the temple. They destroy the city of Jerusalem. In fact, you can go to Jerusalem today and you'll still see the first remnants of that horrible battle that was fought there. So everything comes to pass. But here's what astounds me the most. It's not what Isaiah says. It's not even what would happen in the future. Listen to what Hezekiah's response is to Isaiah. He says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Isaiah just told him his kids are going to be eunuchs in another country. And he says, Man, that's the best thing I've heard all day. <laughs> Why? Why not? if there will be peace and security in my day. This is called the Hezekiah syndrome. It's a syndrome that we all are susceptible to. It's a syndrome that says, as long as I'm fine, I'll be good. As long as this church grows, I'll be fine. We have no interest in what's coming after us. Friends, look around this church. We have more young, small, not so small feet anymore. My son's feet are as big as skis but we have lots of little feet in this room. What are we building? What are we leaving for them? Are we content to say, Lord, just give me my lot here and now. It doesn't matter what happens in the next generation. Let me ask you a question. If you compare the Acts church to the modern day church, which one is more powerful? What? Okay, the church of Acts. Does that make any sense? The way I understand it is that we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Right? And so if the church of Acts was so powerful, surely the modern day church should be multiplied, multiplied, multiplied times more powerful. We can't even be the Acts church. Holy moly, 2,000 years have gone and we're weaker than the original church. Why? Because everybody has built for their own generations. They do not care about what's coming after them. Multiplication means that when we build, we build for the next generation. We send people, we plant things, we create things, we create foundations that are built on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and not foundations built on man's vision, man's dreams, man's goals, man's objectives, friends. 
We are setting up this next generation for failure if we do not reproduce what God has placed in us, friends. And let me tell you another story. You have two people in the Bible, Elisha and, and, and Elijah. You know those two guys, prophets, crazy guys, brought fire down from heaven, Elijah. Elisha got the double anointing. We love to say, Lord, give me a double portion of your anointing. Do you know what that actually means? I was explained this this week by a guy called Mark Hanby. And the double portion of the anointing was the transferal of the inheritance from a father to a son. That's how you double an anointing. You don't get like double magic. You get your father's inheritance, what he has built, and then you get to build your own. And then what happens is you take your father's, yours, and you give it to the third generation. It's triple inheritance. You do that again. It's a quadruple inheritance. You do it again. Sorry, I'm spitting on you guys. It's a five-tuple inheritance, whatever, that, whatever happens at that point. And it just multiplies, multiplies, multiplies. Elijah, Elisha says to Elijah, before you go, father, he calls him father, he says, give me your portion. I want a double portion. What he's saying is I want to work in the, gifts and the power that you set up here in the teaching that you gave me. And then I want to build on it what God's going to do in me. And so Elijah says something interesting. He says, if you see me, if you look into my eyes, the moment I'm taken up to the Lord, then you will have my double portion. What he is saying to him is a father to a son. If you and me are walking together, if we are in relationship with one another, if we are in unity with one another, you will have what is mine. We have no generational inheritance in the church because the church is divided. Multiplied, not, I mean, not multiplied, it's, what's that other thing in biology? It's cell division in a bad way, not in a good way. Sorry. I'm going to close with this. What? Myosis, mitosis, morosis, whatever. <laughs> the band can come up. Multiplication, friends, last point, is actually the only option we have. And so if you don't get it, let me tell you, this is actually the only option you have. And I'm going to tell you why. Again, I'm not going to read the scripture, but you can go read it. Jeremiah chapter 20. I want to credit David Wilkerson for this, a man who I respect greatly, a man who started and created an amazing organization that worked with drug aids all across the world. He's gone since to be the Lord. But he had this concept, this thing that he would always say, he had fire in his bones. And it comes from this particular passage in Jeremiah 20. You see, multiplication is the only option we have because we are a people with fire in our bones. So let me tell you about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was, the, unfortunately, he really did get the raw end of the stick. I mean, the deal. The, the, I don't know, whatever. However you get that thing. He got the raw end of the deal, the short end of the stick, right? He was a guy that was called to prophesy to a nation, Israel, that ultimately would be now taken over by Babylon because of what Hezekiah did and tell them all the bad things that were coming because they didn't want to trust in God. They trusted in themselves. They hewn out systems for themselves. They believed in their own power, their own authority, their own ability. They created idols, blah, 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 blah. It goes on and goes on. Jeremiah tells them, listen, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The wrath of God is coming. And you know, Pasha, who's the governor and the high priest, doesn't like this because he doesn't want no conspiracy theorists out there by the temple. And so he shuts him up. He puts him in the stocks. He takes Jeremiah, puts him in the stocks. And you know what happened to people when they were in the stocks? He was there for 24 hours, by the way. He had nowhere to go to the bathroom, so make up your own mind and, and use your own imagination. But when, we, when people were in the stocks, other people coming into the temple would make fun of them. They would laugh at them. They would throw feces at them. They would sometimes urinate on them. They would hit them. They would beat them with sticks. Kids would laugh at them, pull out their hair. Sometimes they'd pull all their hair out of their head. And the person couldn't go anywhere. It is literally where the word laughing stock comes from. These people were in humility, in disgrace. This is Jeremiah, the man who has God's words in him, who's preaching what God told him, is now the laughing stock of the city of Jerusalem. And so 24 hours later, Jeremiah gets led out of the stocks. And this is what he says to the Lord. He says, oh Lord, in verse seven, you have deceived me. 
Can you imagine the desperation in Jeremiah's voice? Lord, you've deceived me. And I was deceived. You are stronger than I am. And you have prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all day. Everyone mocks me. Have you ever felt like people mock you in this world? Man, you don't even know what Jeremiah went through. Whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach. The word of the Lord has become for me a reproach, a derision all day long. And you know what blows my mind is that I can understand why Jeremiah said that. I think if any one of us were tested the way Jeremiah was, man, we would have given up a long time ago. Maybe I would have given up a long time ago. Let me say that I would have given up a long time ago. But here's what blows my mind. In verse nine, he says this. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. You see, in spite of the humiliation, in spite of the pain, in spite of the shame, What Jeremiah says is the word in me is greater than all of those things and there is a fire in my bones and I'm going to share it. Jeremiah remembered to himself in that moment what God said to him in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Jeremiah, before you were even formed in your mother's womb, I knew you and I've called you to be a prophet to the nations. Or what he said to him in Jeremiah 1 verse 7, do not say that I'm only a youth for to all whom I send you, you shall go and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them for I'm with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Or when he said this in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 18, and behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall against the whole land against the kings of Judah, the officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord. You see, when Jeremiah was going through all that pain, that's, I bet, what he was hearing in his head. He was like, that's not the God that I serve. The God that I serve is with me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. And I want to say to you this morning, perhaps you here, and maybe you feel like a Jeremiah, Maybe you feel like, where's God in my situation? Maybe you're going through some of the hardest things you've ever been through in your life right now. I don't know what it is. Maybe you've been mocked. Maybe you've been tortured. Maybe you've been beaten. Or maybe you've lost your fire. Maybe that fire doesn't burn in you the way it used to burn one day. Maybe it's gone. And maybe you like Jeremiah saying, Lord, I've had enough of this. I can't do this anymore. You know, more people today in the church are are considering suicide than ever before. Whatever it is that you're going through, I want to encourage you. The words that God spoke to Jeremiah are the same words He's speaking to you today. He's saying to you, I'm with you. I've made you a defended city. Pillars are holding up the walls and there are brass walls around you. Be not afraid. You see, friends, if we look deep enough, we'll find that that fire that may have gone out is deep inside of our bones because God wrote them there. And nothing and no one, no circumstance, no situation can take it away from you. John Wesley put it best. He said, get on fire for God and men will come and see you burn. You wanna know how to multiply. You wanna know how to reproduce. Dig deep, find those words written on your bones, that fire that's inside of you and catch fire 
and do what fire does. Spread. Can I ask you to bow your heads? We're going to break bread this morning together. You see, catching fire again has everything to do with remembering where we've come from. You see, no matter how desperate your situation is right now, you have to understand one thing, that this world is as close to hell as you are ever going to get as a believer. But then you also have to remember the other side of that coin, and that's this. For all the lost people out there, maybe your friends, your family members, this world is as close to heaven as they will ever get. And so when we break bread, what we're doing is remembering the cross. We remember the broken body of Jesus Christ, which is represented in the bread. We remember the blood that was poured out for our sins that washed us clean. And we take this and we say, Lord, I'm remembering what you did and I will never forget. But can I ask you this morning, as we partake of the communion table together and everybody's invited, if you're a child of God, if you're not, I'd love to pray with you anyway. Can I ask you to do this? Let this moment, this breaking of bread, not just be a liturgical moment where we get to come and do this Christian thing that we do. There is, by the way, gluten-free bread at the back. But let this be a moment where we can go back and say, Lord, let me catch fire for you again. I want to catch fire, Lord, so people will come and watch me burn. And when they do, I can tell them about Jesus. And so I'm going to pray and then I invite you to come up and have communion. You dip the bread into the juice. Go back to your chair, pray. Pray with each other if you want. And if anyone needs prayer, maybe you want to be set on fire again and you just need somebody to trust with you. I'll be up here in front to pray. The deacons, Trey, Kelsey, Kelly, Mark, Lily, Jeremy will be up here. We'll pray with you. Anybody else that wants to pray will be up here. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your broken body that was shed. I mean, that was broken for us on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the blood that was shed for, this, for our sins. We thank you for the pain that you endured so that we would never have to. Today, as we break bread, we declare the victory of the cross. We thank you, Lord, for what we have. We are enamored with you, Lord. We are in love with you because you have saved us from so much pain and given us eternal life. We declare that today. And no life from the enemy can ever take that away from us. No product of man can ever take that away from us. It is secure. It is finished. It is bought. It is paid for. It is done. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we have this moment that you would move amongst our hearts. And for every one of us this morning, where we've allowed that fire to disappear entirely, that you would start to breathe on it again. Let the fire in our bones be the very catalyst that we need as this local church to change the city, the nation, and the world that you've called us to reach. And I pray this today in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.